Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Many of us grew up during a time when every family got at least one newspaper and watching the evening news was pretty much compulsory. Now we live in the so-called information age. We all have a glut of information available with just a few taps. In some ways, it is an age of plenty, but we've also lost a great deal along the way, particularly when it comes to local news and local journalists. Iowa has lost hundreds of journalism jobs in the past decade. Many local newspapers have disappeared and still more are at risk. But some news organizations have found a way forward thanks to philanthropic efforts. On November 2nd, IPR hosted a conversation along with the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation called Rebooting the News in front of a live audience at the State Historical Museum. The first guest of the night was Chris Martin, professor of digital journalism at the University of Northern Iowa and member of the IPR Board of Directors. Well, there's a couple things happening. One is the number of newspapers in Iowa is going down. So, um... If we look at uh, where we were just in 2019, the Iowa Newspaper Association directory had 273 newspapers. Um, as of um, more, more recently, we have 242 newspapers. Um, so that's, that's gone down, the number of newspapers. But even at the newspapers that survive, um, many of them have fewer employees. So I can think of um, you know, my local uh, Waterloo Courier newspaper, which um, you know, has six to eight journalists um, when I first came to Iowa in the mid-90s, there were about 30 journalists. So it's, it, and that's, that's a common story, actually, making do with, with fewer journalists. Uh, and, but part of that is it's just the way um, people experience news these days. Um, I uh, had a, a brief survey in my class of about 120 students, a mass communication society students, and uh, asked them to put their hands up if they, um, if they read a newspaper, a print newspaper, and no hands went up, so, um, and I wasn't surprised, I told them, but, and there were more hands that went up when I talked about other things. So do you read a newspaper that might be digital? Um, and then there was, I saw more hands raised, but journalists, um, you know, I, I have to remind my students, the things you see on social media, those stories, there was a journalist behind that, and, and it's probably not acknowledged in that social media story immediately, too, so, but there, someone has to get paid to do that work. And it's nice if you can also trust the journalists behind the work and <laughs> verify sources and all kinds of, of good stuff that used to feel pretty something you could take for granted when you got that newspaper on your front porch. Absolutely. I mean, they were people in your community. Um, you oftentimes knew who they were, so there's a lot of trust there. And, uh, you know, just putting out verified journalism over decades and decades and de decades, it builds up a reputation. So things actually got worse during the pandemic. A lot of things got worse during the pandemic, but the pandemic also reminded all of us how incredibly essential local news is, but it was really hard on papers. So on one hand, journalism was incredibly essential during that time. At the other hand, um, not a lot of people um, were working. So as other businesses cut and laid off people, um, that certainly affects the bottom line in terms of what they're doing in terms of advertising. So that had a really devastating impact on, on all news organizations. And a lot of newspapers are owned by large syndicates. 
And um, looking at the research that you've done, it's newspapers that are locally owned that seem to at least be hanging on a little bit better. These large syndicates are cutting a lot of staff. That, that is true. Um, you know, if you're owned by a, a very large corporation, I mean, they're really just managing a business and oftentimes from afar, so they don't really have concerns and, and also the, the kind of dedication and connection to the individual communities. So, so they're just looking at, um, if it's a newspaper company, for example, looking at newspapers, which one's not doing the best, and that's the one that gets cut back, or that's the one that gets merged into another newspaper or something like that. So um, that personal connection and local ownership is one of the factors that actually really helps. It doesn't mean you're going to succeed, but it, it actually means that there's there's more reason to succeed, uh, more reason to find other ways of doing things. Um, and so I don't and think... And maybe more freedom? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they, they, can, re, they can reinvent themselves a lot more easily than a, a large corporation um, who might say, well, this is how we do things. We're not going to take one newspaper out of our stable of newspapers and make that one a nonprofit. That's kind of unusual for them. So, as I said, we're going to find out about a couple of newspapers that have really been innovative and creative and are doing pretty well these days. Um, but I would love for you to tell me about a couple other papers in Iowa. For example, in Iowa Falls, this is, this is a, a newspaper that seems to have endured a little better than most, maybe significantly better than most. Yeah, that, that's a newspaper that, um, you know, still, you know, lost some in terms of their audience, not as badly as, as some other newspapers that might have been, you know, owned by um, uh, Lee or Gannett. Um, so those papers and those chains really have suffered quite a bit, um, you know, for, for years, but especially um, during COVID time and afterwards. So the Iowa Falls um, newspaper, uh, The Times Citizen, is also owned by the same person that owns the local radio station. So they have the advantage of, of teaming up and actually, you know, doing a sale, you know, where it can be across the newspaper and the radio station. And they're not competing against each other, which actually helps them uh, quite a bit. And so they have lots of buy-in and uh, because they have the local ownership, they have a, a really strong uh, base of people who want to support them in the community. So that helps out. Let's talk a little bit about the Cedar Rapids Gazette as well. Um, they have had hard times. They are no longer printing their own paper. That, that's a pretty big shift. Um, but they also are employee-owned. Do you feel like that's uh, something that gives them an advantage in this climate? Again, they've had some rough times, but not as rough as other newspapers um, in Iowa and elsewhere. So um, yeah, it's kind of an unusual way to set up a newspaper, an employee stock ownership uh, program. Um, but uh, there's a few newspapers that do that. Um, in Dubuque, the Telegraph Herald is set up that way. There's a big newspaper in suburban Chicago that's set up that way as well. And again, it, it gives you kind of a bigger stake in it. Um, it's also a little bit unusual because uh, the Cedar Rapids Gazette is owned by a bigger corporation, Foliance, that owns other things like they make um, trailers in, in Oklahoma. So, um, so there's a little bit of, uh, of additional revenue that's coming in from non-newspaper businesses that helps them out. So Chris, stay with us, but I want to bring Art Cullen into the conversation now. Art Cullen, I think you know who he is, but Art Cullen is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the editor and publisher of the Storm Lake Times pilot. Art, welcome. Thank you, Charity. It is wonderful to have you here. And Art... It's great to be here. When we lose a newspaper, especially in a small town in Iowa, what do we lose? <clears throat> well, I think you lose the fabric of the community when, uh, when there's no common set of facts 
And uh, that's what happens in news, so-called news deserts. These are towns of 20 or 30,000 people that have no uh, local news source. And there's been academic studies done, show, primarily by the University of Notre Dame and another by the University of North Carolina, that show that crime goes up, government spending goes up, uh, taxes go up, uh, drunk driving goes up, because there's no shaming going on. Uh, and, uh, and so it really has real impacts. Let's do the, the relatively brief version of your story. You won your Pulitzer in 2017. That led to a book deal. That led to a documentary. That brought you a lot of attention from across the country, but that still wasn't enough to put your newspaper into the black. I mean, you were really, really struggling. Right. Uh, we lost $70,000 the year we won the Pulitzer Prize in 2017. And, uh, but we're too stupid to quit. And so we plowed right into the pandemic. And uh, we were, it's reflected in this documentary. The documentary switches from the, it's called Stormlike. And it was produced by, uh, and directed by a guy named Jerry Reishis from Buffalo Center, Iowa, raised on a hog farm. And showed on public television uh, on independent lens. And in this, one of the final scenes switches from the Iowa caucuses, and then a week later, it's the pandemic. The headlines are all about the pandemic, and they switch to me, and I'm talking about, oh, I just got off the phone with my brother. We were talking about just closing the newspaper. And we were very close to that. And uh, fast forward, thank God for public radio. Uh, we were on fresh air. I was being interviewed by uh, uh, Dave Davies. Yeah. And we're going broke fast. And the documentary had just come out, and the payroll protection program had gotten us through the worst of it, but we still didn't know how we were going to make it through the first quarter of 2022. And we needed about $66,000. This guy hears an interview, this interview on fresh air, he drives a Porsche in L.A., and he emailed me and said, I'm going to put, he didn't know how much money we needed, but he said, I'm going to put $65,000 in your bank account. His name is John Tu, T-U, and he's an immigrant from China via Taiwan, he fled mainland China with Chiang Kai-shek, uh, and uh, he showed up at a screening for our movie, the movie in L.A., and he said, I'd like to help. And in typical Iowa fashion, I said, oh, no, you've done quite enough, thanks. <laughs> and he said, no, I really want to help you. If you can find a sustainable business plan, I'll fund it. Uh, and so we ended up buying our competition. We were killing each other, the Stormlight Pilot Tribune and the Stormlight Times. We were able to buy the Stormlight Pilot Tribune and we uh, also had to buy the Cherokee Chronicle to go along with it. And uh, that got us out of uh, going broke. We, uh, circulation is now growing. Uh, our circulation revenue in October was double what it was last October, a year ago. And we're in the black for the first time, solidly in the black for the first time in 30 years. And everybody's got health insurance? And everybody's got health his only His only request, John Tu's only statement to me was, make sure that everybody has health insurance 
and stand up for democracy. And he didn't say uh, endorse Donald Trump or endorse Joe Biden or, uh, you know, protect agriculture, hog farmers or whatever. He didn't, he just said protect democracy and make sure everybody has health insurance. So everybody has health insurance. Everybody's gotten a raise. Uh, and we now have more legs on the street uh, than Storm Lake has ever had. And it's all because of John Two and the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, which uh, Doug Burns and I helped start uh, during the pandemic. And uh, if it weren't for that, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. We'll be back to our conversation about rebooting the news in just a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. On November 2nd, IPR co-hosted a conversation along with the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation called Rebooting the News. It focuses on the role of philanthropy in keeping local journalism alive and was recorded in front of a live audience at the State Historical Museum. The panel included Art Cullen, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and editor and publisher at the Storm Lake Times Pilot. And before the break, we were talking about how a generous donor came along just at the right time to not only keep the Storm Lake Times afloat, but to help it grow. I asked Art if he sees a sustainable business model that the paper can use going forward. Uh, yeah, I do, uh, especially in metro markets, uh, as you pointed out, the most successful papers are locally owned. The Minneapolis Star Tribune is owned by Glenn Taylor. Boston Globe is owned by John Henry. Uh, the Seattle Times is owned by Frank Blethyn. And the New York Times is owned primarily by the Salzberger family. And Jeff Bezos owns uh, the Washington Post. And uh, despite some recent troubles at the Washington Post, all those outlets are doing just fine. Uh, the Minneapolis Tribune still puts out a very healthy Sunday print edition. Uh, our print circulation in Storm Lake is stable to growing. Digital circulation, as I said, has doubled. Uh, and uh, advertising revenue is flat to declining. And uh, we believe we can make up for uh, a lot of this decline in advertising through increased circulation. At one time, the, you know, uh, the, we should be able to sell 5,000 subscriptions in Buena Vista County. The Storm Lake Pilot Tribune did in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, we can still do that today if we, if we deliver the news properly. What we can't get back is that advertising. And uh, there's a big enough universe of readers to make a nice profit off subscription revenue alone. And we're just, we're really getting into that now. And the New York Times and the Minneapolis Star Tribune are proving it. The question is whether there's a big enough universe of readers in rural Iowa to float the boat simply on reader revenue alone. I don't think there is. 
And so that's where philanthropy comes in. Without John, too, we would have gone broke. And we still, we have to make this digital transition while supporting a print legacy product. If you look at this room, you know, it's a pretty white-haired crowd. We all like print newspapers. Most people in this auditorium do. And uh, so we have that legacy product. It is vital and it does sell advertising and people read it. But we don't have the resources to really make a, a really sophisticated to turn to digital. Our digital product is still very rudimentary. We have a couple recent college grads throwing it together. I don't understand it, I'm a Luddite. And uh, we could, we've got to do a lot better, but that takes money, it takes real talent. And we don't have that, paying 16, 17 bucks an hour to a recent college grad. And um, we need help to lift salaries, to attract talent, to make this digital transition. I see it over a five-year period. If we can't make it happen in the next five years, then we might as well give up and go sell shoes. We're going to come back to you in a few minutes, but I want to bring Lorena Lopez into the conversation. Lorena Lopez is the publisher of La Prensa and of the Denison Free Press very recently, <laughs> recently launched in July. La Prensa is the main source for Spanish language news from Western and Central Iowa, focused on local news and sports, aimed at Iowa's Hispanic population. And the Denison Free Press, like I said, is, is brand new. We'll talk a little bit more about that story in a moment. Lorena, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you, everybody, for being here also. La Prensa has been successful. You've been keeping La Prensa afloat for, is it 17 years now? 18. 18? 18. This May, 18 years. And uh, La Prensa is a free paper. So tell me how this works. How, how do you keep La Prensa going? Well, um, I want here public to recognize the help and the in, uh, courage that my son, older son, gave me when he was actually in UNI. I don't think that I never will study in La Prensa as a journalist. I was journalist in Nicaragua for work in TV for so many years, never have experience in, in newspaper, and came to United States, and one time my son came, and he say, and I asked him uh, how I wish to study my own paper. I just pick up a paper from Denison that the name was Que Pasa, and it's crazy. It was a Google translation paper. A Google translation yes. paper. Oh, dear. With a lot of uh, Spanish, even bad words. Oh. Yes, believe it or not. And he came and from you and I, for I wash his clothes and cook for him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, um, I told him how I wish Carlos to study my own newspaper, but I don't know how expensive is that. And I don't know what to do. He come back like two months later and he say, Mom, you're going to start in your own newspaper. I talk and you and I and a professor is helping me. La prensa is starting like that. I didn't know nothing about computer because in my, uh, in my time, you know, a uh, computer didn't exist in Nicaragua. Only rich people and I didn't was a rich person. So anyway, um, we buy the first computer, and he was the graphic designer. He never did a graphic designer. 
I feel very, very proud. I just like to say that story because uh, I think very, very blessing with that, with my song. But when La Prensa is starting, Latinos and Denison, uh, it was growing population in Store Lake. It was more Latinos than in Denison in that time, 2006. But we are starting to grow and growing, and, and I find out what Latinos have their first newspaper, journalistic talking, you know, in their hands, something that they was used to see back home. They embraced the paper. They, it was some kind of identity for them. And I started to receive so many phone calls, and I saw how value was that for Latinos in rural area. People like it, and the most important, a lot of time, in that time, a lot of business didn't like too much diversity, but they like the dollar, they like the penny of the diversity, right? So they starting to call me and they starting to advertise in the paper. So the paper survived for advertising. Um, we keep it like maybe for the first year, and after the first year we saw the profit, the paper was doing something, and here is La Prensa, 18 years uh, later, you know. Um, I don't have employees. I am been doing it by myself. I think that if I wish, if I will able to keep, to have employees, it will grow more. Because I, even when newspaper is dying and people talk, I, I still have faith. And especially the vulnerable, that Latin, vulnerability, vulnerability mm -hmm. that Latinos, um, older Latinos like me, that they didn't go to, uh, they, they don't speak English, right? They are vulnerable in their jobs. They are in, in every situation. And newspapers, for me, for an immigrant woman, have so much value, especially in our rural areas, because we need to do um, responsible to the city. We need to be respo made responsible to people from all those jobs, uh, uh, like implant immigrants, you know. They don't have who talk for them, but they call la prensa, and they say, hey, Doña Lorena, this and this is happening in my job. And we are able, I am able to go and talk with people and put the story out. So it's that that we need. To um, amplify their voices. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. Um, after COVID-19, like every single business, in, in, you know, after COVID, um, we suffer. La Prensa suffer a lot. And a lot of... I had to support the paper almost for six, seven months, literally to able to pay. Advertising don't was enough to pay the printer, right? And uh, if we all not be for, the, for uh, Western Iowa uh, Journalist Foundation, probably I will have to close and see only with one person working and paying a graphic designer because I delivered the paper. I go and sell advertising, I write these stories, you know, and, and, and 18 years after La Prensa was able to um, continue surviving. Yes. So 
you um, you do all of these things, and then you decide to start a new paper. Yes. So <laughs> let's talk just briefly about the the Denison Free Press. Now, the Denison Bulletin Review is owned by Lee Enterprises. This is one of those ghost papers. Now, Lee made a lot of cuts, and a couple of people who were very influential in that newsroom left that newsroom, and they have partnered with you to start the Denison Free Press. It is a local paper launched in July. It is also free, like La Prenza. It is online and in print. So, uh, Lorena, tell me why you felt that the Denison Free Press was such an important step to take. We are a community. In July 6, this year was our first edition, has been overwhelming, overwhelming how people has been embracing the, the, the newspaper. It's free because I believe, I believe in that model. I don't know how to do subscription, but it gives me a lot of hope to hear art to say that subscription went up. But for now, um, we are a free paper. Denison Free Press is um, weekly, every Thursday. Is there a make it for local journalists with local news and local ownership? I I think that we need all to do um, some kind of more strong job work as a journalist to talking with our legislatures that they need to change about that. Because people want, I go to subscription. Why people want, then it's on free press, they say that they're going to pay. I don't have the money to support that, okay? You don't have the money to run the subscription service. I don't. Right, I don't have there's the money. only three of you. It's only three. Yeah. And for the foundation, we have two journalists there that they get paid. Okay? I don't get paid. What about, I, I think, what about if I go to subscription and I will not have how to hire a full employee or part-time employee, and beside that, what's going to happen with the readers when it's on the legislature push and, and subscription don't have to be the papers that have subscription don't have to be the decided paper for public notice. Do you understand what okay, you mean? So you, it, small towns or towns, all mm -hmm. towns, have to uh, publish public notices. Mm -hmm. And historically speaking, that's been a big source of income for newspapers. But in a free paper, they don't... The free paper are illegal to okay, run so they a public notice. They and can't papers. put those notices in your paper. Yeah. And that I think means we need that to hang on to the things. we need to hang on to the legal notices we got. Right. <laughs> so okay, so that, that can't be a source of income for the Denison Free Press. Uh, yes, they, they were trying yes. to eliminate legal notices in the Iowa legislature a year ago, and there's a state senator from Eldridge, Iowa, Carrie Lake Wannabe. Uh, and uh, uh, they tried, and it would have killed uh, a third to a half of Iowa's newspapers. So we just have a few minutes left here before we take a break. Um, I, I want to talk about 
the future? I mean, we've we've talked a lot about what has gone right with your papers, although this clearly there are a lot of vulnerabilities here still. And Chris, you've taken a look at all of these different papers. So so tell me, what do you feel can change that can help these papers and others succeed? You know, there's some small things you can do um, that uh, that would be helpful. One, um, Art had just mentioned uh, the public notices, and that's one way that the, the government actually helps newspapers without getting involved in the decisions, the editorial decisions of newspapers. Um, another thing that actually, um, this goes all the way back to the founding of the country, one of the very first laws that was ever passed was the Postal Act of 1792. And the idea was, should we, should we allow newspapers to go free through the press because they had a, there was a postal service already at that time and uh, free through the mail yeah right, okay. th- through the mail yeah exactly um so they ended up uh not doing it free because some states disagreed but they ended up doing it at a low cost but um to to um to help newspapers one idea that's out there now which would help a little bit was is actually to say you could be distributed freely through the US mail um which is how a lot of newspapers are distributed you may have not you have made may have noticed there's not a lot of paper boys or paper girls around these days so the idea if if newspapers are are a fundamental part of democracy and i think if you you know pulled most members of congress they would say yes yeah, so like why not do that it actually would cost um about a billion dollars which in in the big you know scheme of things of the budget that's not very much to actually save newspapers um in small towns across the country um we we will talk a great deal more about philanthropy in a moment and uh you know Art and Lorena I know that you both have been involved in forming the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation but also have benefited from the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation um I mean Art when when you look to the future a lot of people are pulling for you do you feel so like so I <laughs> I think we all are. But do you feel like personal philanthropy? And, you know, I work for a public radio station. We we depend on personal philanthropy on members. Do you think that that's a path forward in addition to subscription that, that you could ask people to invest? Yeah, and we we are. We, uh, we are asking people right now. And we do get a lot of checks for $50 and $100 uh, from readers across the state. It's interesting to me that uh, the great majority of the money that we've raised has come from out of state. Uh, it's very difficult to raise money in Iowa. And uh, uh, it's a cultural trait of ours, apparently. And uh, like I say, I, I don't think that philanthropy, we cannot depend on, on philanthropy. I don't think we can use the public broadcasting model entirely. That's why readers need to contribute. Uh, you know, and for less than a price of a bad cup of Starbucks coffee, uh, you know, you can buy your local newspaper and, uh, or subscribe to your local newspaper. And, uh, and it's a very cheap way to maintain democracy. All right, we are going to take a break. But thank you, all three of you, Chris Martin, Art Cullen, Lorena Lopez. Thank you so much. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. On November 2nd, IPR co-hosted a conversation along with the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation called Rebooting the News. We recorded in front of a live audience at the State Historical Museum. And with newspapers shutting down and newsrooms shedding jobs, a lot of people are waking up to the fact that journalism needs to be saved if we want to continue living in a functioning democracy. Even though there isn't just one thing that will save journalism, philanthropy is an increasingly important part of the equation. I welcomed Kathy Obradovich to the stage. She's editor-in-chief of the Iowa Capital Dispatch, and she had a long and illustrious career at the Des Moines Register before making the leap to nonprofit journalism. First, let's talk a little bit about the model of Iowa Capital Dispatch, because I think a lot of us are reading it, but maybe... A lot of people don't necessarily know how it works. Yeah, thanks for having me, Charity. I mean, uh, you're right. Uh, 16 years at the Des Moines Register, um, and I, I spent 16 years before that at the Lee Enterprises newspaper. So, so you know, over 30 years in essentially corporate, um, publicly traded journalism. So moving to nonprofit was a big leap. Um, but I think that um, for me, uh, the decision was made easier by the feeling uh, that, you know, what you heard from from Chris Martin and some of the other guests, that newspapers were shedding staff. And I had, after, you know, 32 years in the business, one of the higher salaries probably in the newsroom, and I felt vulnerable. And so um, moving to a not-for-profit um, it seemed like a risky move, but staying where I was also seemed like a risky move. So um, when uh, State's Newsroom, which is our national organization, approached me about launching a, a newsroom in Iowa, um, I was really intrigued by the idea. At first, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Um, but State's Newsroom is uh, started off at a public policy um, and news organization in North Carolina. Um, the directors looked around the country and saw the erosion, again, that Chris Martin was talking about earlier, of newspaper staff all around the country. And one, and one of the big um, consequences of that was a lack of reporters covering state houses um, and state government around the country. Um, in one of the states um, where we have a newsroom, Montana, there was nobody covering the legislature full time um, before we opened the um, the the Daily Montanan out there. So um, so clearly there was there was a need um, and news deserts all over the country. Um, so the way the way that that it works at Iowa Capital Dispatch is the national organization does the heavy lifting with the fundraising, you know the big donors, the foundations, the Knight Foundation, you know those folks, um, and uh, then we raise money from our local readers at each of the newsrooms. And so uh, the national organization covers our salaries, um, covers um, you know rent if we if we have an office. I think I think we all pretty much everybody has offices, although. We have a very small one because most of our staff is remote. Um, but uh, then, you know, the local local readers are helping us pay for freelancers and interns and um, equipment and uh, you know just travel and training and, and you know all of those kinds of things that you need uh, to keep a newsroom going and to develop a staff. 
The Capital Dispatch, I mean, you you cover a lot of important subjects in Iowa and, and of course, focused on the legislature as well. Um, tell me about the niche that you think you fill. I mean, I, I know why you left the register. Why was there a need for what you're doing? Yeah, so, well, first of all, yeah, I mean, we still have um, reporters that are covering the State House here in Iowa, fewer than there were when I started uh, covering the Capitol, you know, 30 plus years ago. Um, but there were a lot of topics in state government that weren't being covered. Um, so we, st- we started uh, focusing in on those. One of them is the, the state regulatory and licensure agencies. The, these are the people who decide, you know, whether your doctor, your dentist, the nurses, EN, EMTs, um, all of these people are doing, the, you know, doing their job correctly, um, or if they're, if in fact, um, violating, uh, you know, patients' trust and endangering, uh, in a lot of ways, their health or welfare. Uh, nobody was covering those uh, those boards, and so we we and nursing homes in Iowa. Um, you know, the state goes in um, and inspects these nursing homes, and some some of the violations that we read on a regular basis are horrifying, absolutely, you know, tear jerking. And nobody was covering these things, even in their own communities. This is a personal question, but how how does it feel different to be a journalist working for a nonprofit as opposed to working for a for-profit paper? Well, I have to put out a fundraiser, a fundraising newsletter every month. <laughs> or not every month. We do it quarterly, um, pretty much. Um, so it, it is strange. Art and I were just talking during the break. I mean, it, it's hard for journalists to ask for money. Um, you know, we uh, we are sort of, uh, especially those of us who have been in the business for a while, you know, we're, we're supposed to be independent. You know, we're supposed to be, um, you know, not... Um, beholden to anyone, yeah, we're beholden to our advertisers, but we don't we don't let them tell us what to write, et cetera. Um, and so it is different to you know be in a situation where you have a group of people and you say things like, "Please go to iowacapitaldispatch.com and sign up and donate, you know, if you can." So, the uh, to be clear, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, People who give you money don't get to dictate what you write no, either. <laughs> no, I mean we're very clear. We're editorially independent, so we so even our national organization doesn't tell us what to write, um, and that is uh, that was a big attraction for me, frankly, coming from um, coming from the Register, where middle management was, you know, a situation of being um, having a lot of responsibility but very little authority. So. So it's a welcome change, but um, but yeah, you, you have to be clear with donors. I I, I do have um, you know people on occasion who ask, you know, are lawmakers allowed to donate, et cetera? And I said, you know, go ahead, but we're not going to bail you out if you get in trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, Kathy, I'm so glad you're here and, and stay with us. But I want to bring uh, Becky Vanami into the conversation, Executive Director of the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, and the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation is already featured in a lot of this conversation yes. so far. It was founded about three years ago, of course, with a mission of supporting community journalism in Western Iowa. Becky, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Let's go back to um, the the origins of the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation. I mean, forming a nonprofit that would support for-profit businesses like newspapers, that, that 
probably felt like a really strange model getting started. Tell me a little bit about bringing this together. Yes, I had my concerns if we would get nonprofit approval to do that. So it really took a lot of research. And when I began digging into it, I found lots of examples of of courts upholding opinions that a nonprofit would not lose its nonprofit status if it gave money to a for-profit entity as long as it can track how the money was spent and show that it was going back to further the nonprofit's mission. So I thought, ooh, well, that's good. Um, And then secondly, I saw a great example in Seattle. So the Seattle Times, um, it's still a for-profit newspaper, uh, set up an investigative uh, reporting unit that was funded specifically from donations that were made to the Seattle Foundation. So that was an example of a very large community foundation um, that was serving as the fiscal agent. Um, people would make their donations so they could get that uh, the, the tax benefit of, of donating to a nonprofit. And then the Seattle Foundation, in turn, followed up with the Seattle Times to make sure that that money was spent appropriately. So after seeing that, I thought, okay, well, let's give this a whirl. Because really, um, for small newspapers in rural Iowa, it's just not realistic for them to transition fully to a nonprofit model. Um, One of the big reasons is obviously lack of population. But then also, uh, as Art and Lorena mentioned, there are still revenue sources coming through uh, with either subscriptions or from advertising. And even though advertising is declining, uh, there's still advertising money. So they they need to, you, you can't turn away that type of money source in a small town. So that is what it was so great when we got the approval, uh, when the IRS said, yep, okay, you, you can do that. And we made it clear um, to the donors and on our website and in the nonprofit application that the majority of these dollars will be going to for-profit because it supports our mission of, of promoting and protecting democracy and supporting community journalism. Why is it the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation as opposed to the Iowa Journalism Foundation? Well, that was uh, based upon the the newspapers that we were hoping to to help at that time. With uh, it was Doug Burns uh, that approached me with this idea, um, and uh, and he was friends with Art and friends with Lorena, and that was just three examples right there of newspaper owners that were struggling, um, having a lot of difficulty. And so we, in, in the application too, said to the IRS, we're going to use these three counties that those papers are stationed in kind of as our pilot test. Because if we can make this work, we really feel like we can serve as a model um, for the rest of the nation and, and for rural areas everywhere. Tell me what this looks like in action. Well... Yes, we are less than three years old, um, but in that time have raised about $1.3 million, um, which, you know, for being a small, our focus is for small newspapers. It really is phenomenal, but obviously that wouldn't have happened without this little documentary called Storm Lake. So, you know, that's my advice to people. If you want to start a... Win a Pulitzer, have a documentary. (laughs) Yeah, if you want to start a nonprofit, it'd be great if it could coincide with, you know, coincide with the press for, for... uh, an acclaimed 
documentary like yeah, that. That's a good so idea. that really helped. But honestly, when I think I got the uh, approval letter in the mail, um, the end of January, and probably two days later, um, people were making fundraising pitches. We had the website live, Art wrote a column. Um, so in that beginning, I think that first two months, we had about 50,000 that came in. And at that time, I was volunteering my time. Um, the board was really adamant about wanting to make sure that every dollar that came in, we wanted to get that back out the door because it was, we were nearing catastrophic levels. So we really had to triage. So a lot of that money that came in, we, we said, okay, put a grant application together, we will entertain the grant application. Um, and so the board approved some funding right away to get, I think, 35000 back out the door right, a day, right away. Um, and then as the press tour went on with Storm Lake and then, of course, with Art being on NPR and that philanthropist in, in California that heard his story and was so impressed, everything just kind of started ballooning from there. Journalists talk to other journalists. We know how important journalism is. We may even have an inflated sense, but I don't think so. <laughs> but it's been really hard to, to look around and see people don't understand what we do. They don't value what we do. And now our democracy is literally at risk and no one knows how essential we are. Do you feel like there is a greater understanding of how essential journalists are to our society? I, I wish I could say yes. Um, but, um, you know, starting, uh, you know, with um, essentially conservative news media uh, telling their audience that the mainstream news media was lying to them and, you know, had a political agenda, um, all of that, uh, and that environment is still with us. Um, you know, certainly we still have um, presidential candidates and, and not just one, but multiple pre presidential candidates who, you know, point to the press as, you know, somehow a partner with the other side or, um, you know, somehow, you know, responsible for a lot of the ills that we're seeing in the country. And, you know, so I, 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 a lot of that damage uh, it's going to take uh, more than um, you know philanthropy, I think, to cure. Um, you know, we, you know, I'm grateful to see an audience of people here who really care about local newspapers. And, and I would say local newspapers are more trusted, you know, uh, and continue to be a more trusted source of news than, say, a national cable network, for example. Um, but, uh, but I still, I remain very, very concerned about the future of journalism, in part because we, we have a situation where um, people are so politically polarized that they can't even agree on a, a shared set of facts. I mean, Lorena was, and others were here up here earlier talking about, you know, we need to have that shared set of facts in our community, and we need a newspaper to, to be the one to report those facts. Well, there's a lot of people who just don't, even if the facts are in front of them, choose not to acknowledge it if it doesn't, um, if it doesn't already um, support their worldview. So, you know, people are still continuing to sort of coexist with the idea that, yeah, but they're, you know, they're on the other side, those journalists. Um, I, I want to ask a question from the audience, which I think is a question a lot of us have asked. How do newspapers survive when younger generations aren't reading them? Will you eventually just run out of subscribers 
and donors. Becky, what do you think? Oh, this is a hard <laughs> one for me. Uh, well, I, you, have to, you have to connect with people and you have to get that message across. And I still, I still firmly believe we have more in common than, than differences. You just have to find that core commonality. And for me, I know if, if the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, you know, if we can reach the full organizational capacity, um, have full-time staff that can really go out and be that grassroots approach um, and get that education out there. And in Iowa, you have to go face-to-face. -face. That's why the caucuses were, were always so, so popular in the state. Um, because you have to have that face-to-face -face interaction to really talk about why this is important. And I think because so many people have, have so much pride, not only in their hometown, but just the state overall, I think we can have... A, I think we have a, a, a path for sustainability. I really do. But it just takes that work, that grassroots approach of finding that commonality to get that message across. And it can't be just something that's shared on Facebook. You know, it has to be that in-person, that interpersonal communication uh, to really talk about it and connect with people. Becky Vanami is executive director of the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, and Kathy Obradovich is editor in chief of the Iowa Capital Dispatch, a nonprofit online news site. You've been listening to Rebooting the News, co hosted by IPR and the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, and recorded in front of a live audience on November 2nd in Des Moines. This program was produced by Katherine Perkins, recorded by John Pemble, edited by Danny Gear, and special thanks to IPR's Andrea Hansen. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.